All right, so tonight we are going forward in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. And as we get to this part of Chronicles, last week we left off and we had David and his kingdom being established. We had that third point of his mighty men, those amazing men that were once in debt, in distress, and discontent, and how in David's presence as a man of faith with a heart after God, how they're transformed, and they were, he was a leader for the Lord with a heart for the Lord, and he influenced them for the same, and they were awesome, and I pointed out last week, and even this uh, last week teaching verse by verse in these passages, that you can give a strong argument that the kingdom of David was without a doubt the best kingdom for Israel. Because all the other kings were compared to him, and as great as Hezekiah and Josiah were, they didn't quite have the same influence over as much. And they just had their time, and they were faithful in their time, but no one was like David, right? We get the Psalms from David. David's amazing, right? And then his son Solomon gave us Proverbs and all that. So tonight, as we go forward, as we go forward with David, what we have is the establishment of his kingdom, If you recall, when David became king, first he became king, he was anointed the first time by Samuel as a teenager that he would be king. Then about 13, 14 years later, he was anointed to be king of the tribe of Judah in the south. And eventually, seven and a half years later, he was anointed to be king over all Israel. And all the 12 tribes came to him and recognized him as their king. And the nation was unified after the death of Saul, his father-in-law, who had persecuted him. And that's about 1000 BC, the timeline. And here in chapter 12, the focus is on how David became the king with the army, how these troops came to him from the different tribes, each tribe one at a time, even Saul's own tribe, King Saul's tribe, the Benjamites came to him, and how they rallied around David, they became loyal to David, and they became a mighty army that allowed him to become king and establish him as king. And so mighty was his army that we won't see it tonight, but we went verse by verse the other night, when they defeated the Philistines twice, they changed really the history of their region because the Philistines had been a powerful people group and their adversary for hundreds of years before that. But after David and this army took on the Philistines in those two major battles in chapter 14, history shows us, archaeology confirms, that the Philistines just kind of disappear. There was future enemies like the Assyrians and the Babylonians, but the Philistines during David's time, as he rose, that was pretty much, he put an end to them or he... The establishing of his kingdom was the demise and the beginning of the end of theirs. And with that background, I want to draw your attention to verse 38 of chapter 12. And here in this chapter, we're jumping in on the latter part, but this is the list where all these tribes came one by one with different details about them. And it's summarized in verse 38 where it says, All these men of war who could keep ranks came to Hebron with a loyal heart to make David king over all Israel. And all the rest of Israel were of one mind to make David king. Now, after this, we read about their three-day celebration, the feast and all that. But here this text tells us a summary of the entire chapter that these men of war, that's the context, it's military from the 12 tribes, including the Levites. These men of war came who could keep rank. They had military order. And they came to Hebron where David had been the king of Judah for seven and a half years. And they recognized him and they made them their king, David king, over all Israel. Not just the tribe of Judah, but over all Israel. And this key phrase says, they were of one mind to do so. So they were of one mind. They came with a loyal heart, but they came, they were of one mind to do so. 
And that's really our context tonight as we think about this. And we've been going through Chronicles. We've seen different words associated with different people with all the different names. We've had some really good practical applications, always connecting to Jesus and the New Testament and what it means for our lives in 2023. And here tonight, we're going to revisit a few things that are similar but not exactly the same perspective that we've had already and even a couple new things. But the context is men of war, the army, making them strong and establishing him as king. And if you're going to be a political leader, you need to have the army on your side. History shows that. And he did, and they're of one mind. So of one mind is the phrase. I want you to think about you personally right now. The Bible tells us that we can ask what we want of the Lord, seeking wisdom. But let us not do so with a double-minded man, as a double-minded woman. It's very easy for us to be double-minded because we're told in Galatians that the spirit and the flesh, they were against each other. We have an old man in Adam that's under a death sentence, and we're called, we're called to crucify him every day. We're called to present ourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord, to the ministry of the spirit, to put to death the pride, the selfishness, the carnal things, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and just that selfish person that we are. And the Holy Spirit will do that as we seek the Lord. And then we're told that the flesh and the Spirit, they war against each other for they're contrary to each other. And we know as we press into the Lord that the Spirit of God will work in our life and make us more like Jesus and make us into who we're meant to be, the best best version of our life, our person in this brief existence of life that reflects Jesus more and more. And as we let the Spirit work in our life, as we let the Word of God transform us, as we prioritize the kingdom of God and walk in humility, we are transformed, and we become more like Jesus. Now, a healthy church is made up of people that are becoming more like Jesus. You're a healthy human being when you go out in the world as a disciple of Christ, and you're walking in the Spirit. In fact, Romans 8 says, those who set their mind on the Spirit, the Spirit walk according to the Spirit, and it's life. But to be carnally minded is death. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life, in connection with the local church, and in your family is that you're becoming more of a spiritual woman and a spiritual man with the work and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And you're being transformed. And the world's a better place. Where you live is a better place. If you're married, your marriage is a better place. If you have children, you're better parents. If you have adult children, you're even better parents of adult children. If you have grandchildren, you can be super spirit-filled grandparents, okay? Like, this is that work that God wants to do. And it's, it's a transformation of the Spirit having control of our life and transforming us. And when we look at these, um, this work of David, so of one mind, and so we think about personally you being of one mind, me being of one mind, and not being double-minded, and then you think about a marriage, like if two people are in agreement, it says in Amos, if, how can two walk together if not in agreement? So if you're married and you and your spouse are not in agreement, you've got division in your marriage, and that's bad. That's why the husbands are told to humble themselves before their wives, and the wives are told to humble themselves before their husbands as unto the Lord. If you have division in your marriage, in your Christian marriage, you come to church, what's unhealthy in your home, it comes to church. It goes with you in your family gatherings wherever you go. If you have an unhealthy family structure where there's division with teenagers in your home or younger kids that are rebellious, whatever it is, and their standard becomes your standard instead of your standard being their standard, as in Abraham and his tent and everyone's circumcised in his family, it's, it can cause division. Right? Do we really think 14-year-olds know better than their adult parents? Of course not. 
If your house is out of order and in division, you'll bring that to church and that unhealthiness will come to church. So part of the local body of Christ and local churches is to build you up in the most holy faith like Danny is praying for us. That you'll become not a double-minded person, but single-minded and focused for the Lord. That your marriage won't be divided, but you'll be unified and one for the Lord. Your house won't be divided, you'll be, for a divided house can't stand. And you'll be one for the Lord, and everyone will be going forward from glory to glory. That's God's plan in the law of the Old Testament and in the grace of the New Testament. That is his plan. And so there's unity of purpose when you look in the mirror that you don't see a double-minded woman or a double-minded man. Because, you know, like Shakespeare said, to your own self be true. And you know when you're a hypocrite. I know when I'm a hypocrite. I don't want to admit it, but I know it. It's like, look at you, you're such a hypocrite. No one likes to say that to yourself in the mirror, but if you need to, you probably should. Because if you approve yourself before the Lord, then someone else will never approve you. And as a pastor in 35 years, I've never liked reproving anybody. But sometimes I've had to. You don't, want to have, you, you, you don't want these things happening in your personal life. You don't want them happening in your marriage. You don't want them happening in your family. And you don't want them at work. If you have a partnership and two people can't get along, can two walk together if not in agreement? Amos 3.3 again. The answer is no. Pastoral leadership, when there's division in leadership, can two walk to, together if not in agreement? The answer can be sometimes no. So unity of purpose is such a key thought for us tonight. Unity with the person in the mirror. Unity with your spouse. Unity with your family. Unity with your co-workers. Unity with your neighbors. As much as up to you, live peacefully with all men. Unity with your community. Pray for those above you. And if you need to raise your voice to make a difference, do so in a way that honors the Lord as salt and light. Unity in your local church. That when you come to church, you bring health to the church. And you're, and you're part of the solutions, not the problem. And no one's perfect. So we come here to be built up. That's why we come here. I'm not a perfect pastor, and you're not a perfect congregation. You'll never find either on planet Earth. But if we're under construction and making progress, that's what we want to see in our lives when we look in the mirror and when you come to church and see the leadership of the church. Of one mind, unity of purpose. It says in verse 22, excuse me, it says in verse 30, what we just read, 38, that all these men of war came. And if you go back to early on, it was summarizing these men and it said of the men of Manasseh who defected to David from King Saul, back in verse 22, it says they came, they came to David day by day to help him until it was a great army like the army of God. So these men that had of one mind, and their wives and their families, of course, they're of one mind and with a unity of purpose to make David the great king, they came to him day by day. David got stronger day by day. From the time Saul was throwing the spear at him in the castle or in the palace, and he fled in his 20s on the run, a fugitive, always on the run, slandered, maligned. In all that time, he was growing in his walk with the Lord, in his understanding of the Lord. And we see this reflected in so many of the Psalms. Because as you know, many of the Psalms tell us this was written when he went through, when Dog the Enemite did this, or when Saul pursued him here. I, I mean, we get narrative sometimes that introduces psalms to us so we know the historical record of what was going on in his life and then he tells us from his heart what it felt like when he's singing that song to us and so from the time he's about 17 and defeats Goliath he's driven from the castle in his early 20s he's a fugitive for years eventually he becomes the king of Judah in the south and at the you know the age of 40 the kingdom's unified 
day by day, as he walked by faith with a good heart before the Lord, he grew in his walk. We also saw in this chapter early on on Tuesday night that when the, the guys from, when the fellows from Benjamin came, who are from the tribe of Saul, he said, hey, if your intentions are good, God will honor it. But if they're bad, God will protect me and deal with you because there's no iniquity in me against you in any of these things. He trusted in the Lord. As he had been anointed by Samuel to be king, and before he's, well, and then he became king for Judah, but before it all came to pass, the vision back to when he was a teenager there in his father's house, he was trusting in the Lord. And listen, day by day, God was moving him toward his destiny with the Lord. And day by day, he was growing with the Lord. It was day by day. And even here, as one tribe after another came to him, it says in the narrative that day by day they came to help him. And we're reminded here tonight, whatever your calling is in the Lord here at Worship Generation or those that have come and gone and gone to other places where God's using them locally or globally or nationally, God has a plan to day by day keep you and I moving toward that calling in our life in unity with the universal church and our local church to fulfill our purpose in this life experience and our destiny. That's why on my eight pillars that are important in life that I've come to at 61 years of age, summarizing the things that really matter, the first one is divine purpose. Because every life has divine purpose. You know, the funny thing, if you read any success books, they always say, like, your life has purpose. But see, that's so two-dimensional. Because I know in Genesis 1 and 2... And the totality of scripture that I can look at anyone on planet earth, saved or unsaved, and say that your life has divine purpose. And when someone comes to Christ, I can say, you have been transformed and are being transformed. You pass from death to life and your life has absolute divine purpose. There is a calling. And as I've been saying, we've passed from sin and death in the first Adam and trying to save ourselves by good works to being saved by grace and faith and to a workmanship. And that's our destiny. And that destiny was working in David's life this entire journey. And day by day, especially when he's coming to the fruition of the bigger vision to be king of Israel, day by day, the Lord was moving things in favor. The Lord was making this happen, this divine appointment, these things. Suddenly these guys wake up down there in Manasseh and go, hey, listen, I know exactly what's going on right now. This guy's going to be the king and we need to affiliate with him. Like day by day, God was giving him favor like Joseph in Egypt back in the book of Genesis. And God went before him and God went behind him. As God said to Moses, I'll be the angel that goes before you and behind you. And day by day, God was doing this for David. It was happening supernaturally, spiritually. And then it was showing itself naturally in time, space, and matter of what we can see. But A man can receive nothing, a woman can receive nothing unless it's from the Lord. So promotion or disfavor, these are things from the Lord. And if we're walking by faith and we know that all things work together for good according to his will and purpose in our life, if we love him, then we can trust that that overall destiny of our life through faith and that purpose for all eternity, because this is all preparedness for eternity, is working and it's happening day by day. God wants to work in my life and your life day by day until the last day to prepare us for eternity and glory and the things he has for us. We talked about the value of time just, you know, a previous study just in the last week or two. This is a little bit different, though. This is literally every day. You know, it's interesting in the Lord's Prayer, 
Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And then it ends with, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. You know, when Jesus taught us how to pray each day, because this day, give us this idea, this day, our daily bread, it starts with our Father in heaven, eternity. Your kingdom, eternity, our destiny. Come, let it be on earth, it is in heaven. You have the will, you have the plan. Let me align my mind, Psalm 37, 4, delight myself in you and you'll put it on my heart. Yours is the kingdom. See, we're not supposed to start any day as a follower of Christ ever without letting the Lord be Lord of that day. Before you walk out that door, Jesus, my life is yours. If my last day, I want to bring, I want to come with fire and a game. One of these days is going to be the last day, and it could be this day. So live this day like it is the last day. And that's why the Lord's prayer says, your kingdom come, your will be done. See, he wants us to think about our destiny in eternity and glory with him first thing every day, every day. Then we ask for our daily bread. That's just life, right? That's work. That's the neighbors. That's the, that's the king. That's the queen. That's everything around us. That's daily bread. This day, well, you don't have to worry about it yesterday because it's behind you and you can't change it. And tomorrow's guaranteed to no one. It's good to have a vision for the future. But even Jesus said in the same chapter, Matthew 6, listen, don't worry about what you'll eat or wear. Sufficient is the trouble for the day. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Seek first my kingdom, and it'll be added to you this day. So put eternity in front of our day. Give him the burdens of our day. And then end the morning before you go face the world and walk out the door. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's the perspective we're to have day by day. That's how we're to view each day. It's a gift from the Lord. He's moving us toward eternity, and it's the bookends. We can and should make sure that Jesus is the bookends of every day of our life, to start and end, because the whole universe revolves around Jesus. Worthy is the Lamb in eternity, Revelation 5, and we're made by him and for him, and in him all things consist. Our whole purpose is Jesus. It only makes sense to have the kingdom perspective to start the day, deal with daily bread as it comes and goes with the human experience, and, and end the day with Jesus. But, of course, even before you step outside, our prayers is like, hey, because, you know, here's what happens sometimes when you pray. You start out praying big God, little problem. But if you're still focused on your problem, you pray for 15, 20 minutes. God got small and your problem got big. And so Jesus says, so before you walk out that door, before you go start your car, just remember, mine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Don't dumb down the Lord. He's master of the universe. Trillions of galaxies, he's got this. Billions of people that he died for on this planet and trillions of galaxies that declare his glory to us made in his image on this planet day by day. And as we think about day by day, there's that sense of accountability to make good use of our day. And I would just remind us, and I've been learning a lot about this in recent times, because I tend to like dramatic things, explosive things. Whereas I'm learning in my 60s that consistent things will always be dramatic things. We all know the story of the tortoise and the hare. The joy brings more the hare. I fly by you like, woo And then, you know... You're going like this, but listen, business tells us this, eternity tells us this, the entire universe tells us that the long game always wins over the emotional short game. Or, or as the famous book for business things says, you know, it's, a, it's the compound factor. 
that small things with the right choices done daily with consistency equals exponential results. It was Einstein's most important math equation, exponential growth. And what I've learned by looking at people like Pastor Chuck Smith and how I went from just being an everyday four-square pastor in the 50s and 60s to managing probably close to a billion dollars worth of ministry wealth, he never changed. See, I used to, when I went on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa, I'd known Pastor Chuck for years. And when I went on staff, it was a big deal. You know, like he was, he was in his late 70s, and I'm like, I'm with the great Pastor Chuck. I'm like with the Yankees right now, and I, you know, it's just like Yogi Berra or something. Like, this is insane, you know. And I was waiting for something profound from Pastor Chuck, and there really wasn't anything profound at all. He did the same thing every day. Monday, 7.45, the key, or 8.45, he'd open the door, you know, and do his thing, and he'd leave at this time, and church services like this, backstage before service would start, first thing, that 7.15 service, he'd, be, he'd, be, he'd come back out of his office at 7.12. You, you could just say anything to it. I'd be back there, I'm going to do an announcement, I'm, I'm going to wake up these people this morning, you know, Pastor, go, oh, Joey, good morning, you know, and, and he'd have Dave Roth with him, or originally Romaine, when I first went on staff, and it was just, it was like, and you sit through three services, like, oh my goodness, it's the same service. But people are being transformed by the word of God, every service. It was just this consistency and faithfulness for a half a, half a century plus. I thought of Troy Warner recently. Troy Warner pastors in Lynchburg, Virginia. When we went to Virginia to start the church in 91, Troy was at Calvary Vista, and he had a vision to go to maybe to Virginia at the same time. There was a family that left Calvary Chapel Vista and moved to uh, Lynchburg there where Jerry Falwell was in uh, Virginia, uh, Virginia Tech. No, I'm sorry, it's uh, Liberty University. And we visited that family. And we're like, oh, we'll pray for you to have a home group and everything. And so Jennifer and I went out there a couple of times. And Troy came within a year and started a church there. College campus, college ca- town. He got it going. And I was thinking like, He's been there 30 years now. 30 years. He's kind of like the Calvary apostle for that part of the the country. You know, if there's a church problem with the Calvary Chapel within 800 miles, he's one of the guys that solves it. But you know what's interesting about Troy Warner is he went to Russia when the Iron Curtain came down in 89. He went to Russia. I mean, when everyone rushed in, remember like you older people like, man, you know, communism's defeat the Soviet Union. Here comes the church and Jehovah's Witness and Mormons and everybody else. They're all going into, you know, the Iron Curtain and bringing, you know, their good version of the good news. Troy Warner went. Troy Warner went when that all happened. And a funny thing, in the last couple of years when COVID closed the doors and then the war and all that, Troy Warner's still ministering in Russia. He's still like the Calvary Chapel Apostle to Russia from his church in Lynchburg, Virginia. And I was thinking about this, you know, Troy Warner, there's nothing that really, there's nothing dynamic about his personality, his teaching's solid. But I was thinking about this, Troy Warner's been faithful for 30 years, pastoring at Calvary Chapel in Lynchburg, Virginia, with all, the, all those college students coming and going. He's been faithful with the nation of Russia for the 30 years. And when I talked to Pasha, the one person that's still doing stuff in Russia, one of them is Troy Warner. War, no war. COVID, no COVID. See, that's the compound effect. Day by day, 
being faithful in the little things, and let it just compound and build and build and build and build and build. Joy Brand wants to catch the bomb wave out the back of pipeline. He's be like, what? No, it's day by day by day by day by day by day. And that's what happened here with David. Day by day by day, he was getting stronger. Day by day by day, the Lord's sovereignty was over his life and moving him toward his destiny. Day by day by day, God gave him favor in the eyes of other people and brought them to him, who these men that were in debt, in distress and discontent, became the mightiest men, maybe, of any military in human history. God calls them mighty men. So whatever we call any military heroes of any other time, I'm not sure what God calls them, but I know he calls these guys mighty men. That's how we want to live our life. So what are we doing day by day by day to grow in the Lord and advance the kingdom of God? Because the only thing that matters is the gospel and the Great Commission. So what are we doing day by day to get better? See, the one thing you can affect is you. You can make yourself better. You can give yourself in the mirror a better version of you at the end of April than at the end of March, if you choose to. If you do the same thing today you did yesterday and you want to lose weight and eat the same thing, you're not going to lose weight. If you want to watch less TV time you're not going to, and you watch the same amount of TV, you're not going to. You need to pay attention and you have to purpose what you're going to do to improve you for the kingdom. And why wouldn't you improve you or me for talking to myself for the kingdom? Remember what C.S. Lewis said? It's never, you're never too old to dream a new dream. What's your dream? See, my dreams go past 2041 right now. When I'm probably gone. That's what I learned from USA Surfing when I did the Olympics. When I had to reverse engineer the 2028 Olympics and figure out how we're going to get a gold medal at 2028, I did like a college thesis paper on it. I just determined, do I really want to spend the next 10 years of my life to win a gold medal that's temporal and fading? Or do I spend the next 10 years, if I got 10 years, I want to do it for the kingdom of God and do the same thing, bring the same quality of effort for eternal gold with the kingdom. It was an easy decision to let go of pro surfing and the Olympic dream when I compared those two. But they did teach me to reverse engineer 10 years and come backwards and think about where I want to be in 2028. And I just determined I want to be with my wife, with my grandkids, not stressing out over temporal things. And I want to be moving toward eternal treasures in heaven, like Corinthians says. Don't you? So day by day, ask yourself, moving forward, it's the first day of the second quarter. You make time for what you want to do, and you have money for what you want to spend it on. That's what I've learned in the human experience. Day by day, what are you doing faithfully every day? What could you be doing faithfully every day to become a greater version of Jesus to the world? Second thing, with this unity of purpose of one mind, because we want to, as you grow day by day, your marriage gets better day by day. Your kids are blessed day by day. Your grandkids are blessed day by day for you older people. Your neighbors are blessed day by day. It's better for them. Even if they don't want to get better, you made it better for them. Your workplace gets better. Southern California is better. California is better. If you move out of state, you made that state better. That's all there is to it. Now, the second thing is they understood the times of which and what they ought to do. This is verse uh, 32. They understood the times to know what Israel ought to do. Look at that verse. They had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. They had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Jesus, in speaking to the religious leaders who rejected him in Matthew 16, verse 3, 
He said, you know, it's, you guys, you can discern the weather. And if the sky's like this, you say it is what the weather will be tomorrow. Or if the sky's like that, that's what it'll be tomorrow. How is it that you can discern the, the weather, but you can't discern the, the signs of the times? Listen, in other words, they were religious, but the, and they could discern weather, temporal, but they couldn't discern eternal and spiritual. That's, that's scary to think of people in the business of religion that can tell you things about the weather, but they can't discern what's going on spiritually. Because God wants shepherds and shepherdesses over his church, leading the church, and he wants them to understand the times and seasons, what's going on with the Holy Spirit in their lives, in their homes, in their community, in their nation, in their church, the body of Christ worldwide. There's been a massive shift going on the last 30 years in the body of Christ. You may or may not know that. 140 years ago, Hudson Taylor went to China, one of the poorest nations on, in the world, the poorest people in the world, and he went where no one else would go, the Inland China Mission, and all that instability, the Boxer Rebellion, 1902, all that stuff, they attacked the Christians, they were the communists, and all these different things, tribal warfare, and then the Japanese occupation, you know, 37, and all these things, the Mao Zedong, and all that happened. Nixon goes there in the 70s and shakes hands with everybody. All these things happened. The church was closed to the outside world. And the church got stronger and stronger and stronger in China. Stronger and stronger in China. At the same time, after the uh, resolution of the Korean War, which is not really resolved, but in 53, my dad was there, 38th parallel, unresolved. South Korea, after having been annexed by the Japanese, became liberated, and received democracy. Now, there are hundreds of thousands of Koreans in Orange County, actually. So that freedom that South Korea got back during the Korean War set them in motion for a different way of thinking after being annexed by the Japanese and having to fight for the Japanese in World War II, in many cases. They had a newfound freedom, and the church in Korea prospered in South Korea. What a contrast, North Korea. It got stronger and stronger and stronger. Now, Korea is just a peninsula. It's not that big. You know, the Koreans are... You know, the Chinese probably fear the South Koreans more than they do the Americans. South Korea is on the rise. You know, my son Luke works for Hyundai. South Korea has got the biggest entertainers in the world. Their TV shows are number one in the world. Across the board. But you know what I find very profound about Korean culture? is Korea has become the number two nation in the world sending missionaries to the world. Korea passed Great Britain. England used to be the number, it's U.S. and England, the post-colonial world, right? Wouldn't you know more Koreans go out with the Great Commission than British, let alone probably all of Europe unified. See, things are always changing. You discern the times and seasons. The church in China is probably the strongest church in human history right now, the underground church. The church in South Korea, right next to them, is strong, stronger, and strongest. And they're going out with the Great Commission. See, things are always changing. They're changing geopolitically. Civilians, uh, civilizations come and go. And it's good to know what's going on. 
It's good to know what's going on. As I'm praying about missions from when I'm gone from this planet and going deep in Africa and the history of these nations like Ghana and these other countries, Congo, Uganda, Kenya, and just studying these nations, I'm learning so much. But when you study the refugee camps in North Kenya on the border with South Sudan, there's these massive refugee camps that have been there since, well, they've been there a while. And in going through a rabbit trail of missionary research, I suddenly find this UN report, and it's a United Nations plan for the next, till 2040, on how to get these people, tens of thousands, listen to me, this is important, living in refugee camps with little or no hope. You wake up with hope tomorrow. Don't you want to help other people wake up with hope tomorrow? Isn't that what the church does? I mean, that's what we do. We bring faith, hope, and love. How would you like if your kids were growing up in a refugee camp in Kenya with no electricity, no water, and little or no opportunity and being recruited to be child warriors in armies for across the border in Congo and these other places? And the UN has this plan of how they're going to build the municipalities, create infrastructure, electricity, water. When you study African nations, for example, Ghana, Ghana is one of the most prosperous nations in Africa, but two-thirds of it has all the municipalities that you like, but the north, not as much. So all these NGOs like the Ford Foundation, non-governmental organizations, and others, Bill Gates, they're trying to do these things for these people, but they're only giving them a cup of cold water in Adam's name. When we bring the gospel to Ghana, Kenya, Uganda, and the ends of the earth from Korea or from China or to China... We give them living water in Jesus' name. We give them the water for today, and we give them the water for eternity. Ours is such a greater calling. That's why the UN, good for them. The Church of Jesus Christ, better for us. Because we outlast the UN, for sure. Because we're the bride of Christ. And he's going to have the final say in time, space, and matter with his church. See, it's good to know It's good to have a big vision, and it's good to know. Day by day, what's your big vision with the Lord, and where are you going? C.S. Lewis, you're never too old to have a new dream. What is your dream? If you're beginning quarter number two in 2023, and you're just waiting to just roll over and retire, you need to rise up and get things done. Harlan Sanders, right? KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, a bus at everything in life, and at 63, the recipe went. And all that prosperity, Billy Graham, Jerry Falwell, changed the world with those guys. Still had drama in his life. His life was still a lot of drama. The guy always had drama. But he, the last 20 years of his life, he loved Jesus and raised a lot of money that benefited Billy Graham and Jerry Falwell, speaking of Troy Warner, Jerry Falwell, Liberty University, and advanced the kingdom. When you and I are in eternity, you do not, we do not, I do not get a second chance to do anything for eternity. We are who we are. And what we have is what we have. But since Jesus taught over and over and over about getting things done in his power for his glory, for time, space, and matter for all eternity, and rewards in eternity for faithfulness with things in time, it just, it should motivate us. They understood the times and what they ought to do. So the question is, do we understand the times and what we ought to do? I'm asking myself, in 2023, the church has been through so much the last three years. America has been 
through so much the last three years. California's been through a lot the last three years. Planet Earth, the human race, has been through a lot the last three years. So what ought we to do? See, we need to discern. We need to be alert and think about what's going on in our world, our world, in our home, in the person in the mirror. Hey, where are you at? Huh? Huh? In the, the, your spouse. Like, where's your marriage going? Shouldn't your marriage be getting better and going from glory to glory? In Jesus, it should. I mean, there's no limit to God's love. Like, what could be more beautiful than to be like in memory care with your spouse in your 90s and holding hands? What a beautiful ending to the human experience, if that's how it goes. At any rate, if you're married, someone is choosing to be with you. And you should discern where that's at and how to make it better. Because that's the first thing you're going to account for before the Lord, apart from how you manage time, I think, personally. Well, you'll give an account for both, for sure. That I know. I'm not quite certain of the order. But we need to be alert. We need to know what's going on. And we need, we need, to, we need to pay attention to things that matter and ignore things that don't. And we need to discipline ourselves to be still and be thinking about things that matter. And what we don't know, we need to ask the Lord for guidance. And James 1 says, if we lack wisdom, let us ask of the Lord, and he'll guide us. We need to know what's going on within ourselves, within our marriage, within our family, within our friendships, within the body of Christ in our community. We need to know. We need to know. We need to make time to be still before the Lord, and we need to know what the Holy Spirit's telling us about me, who I am with him, because I'm going to stand alone when I step into eternity, and then I'll be in glory with the rest of you. What's going on in my marriage, with my family, my children's children, our finances, this church? See, that's what we got to keep before us. They understood the times and what they ought to do. That's the ultimate thing, is to not just understand things, but what does it mean? We don't need worthless knowledge. We need spirit-led information with the Lord for our life that we act upon to the benefit of his will in our life and the humanity of people around us. And then finally, the third thing we see here is it says they could keep rank. It says it in verse 33, Verse 35, they could keep battle formation. Verse 36, they're able to keep battle formation. And then again in verse 38, they can keep rank. Tuesday night, everyone seemed to really like this thought, this point. It has that idea of just being faithful and you can be counted on in the heat of battle. The famous book, Red Badge of Courage, one of the most famous literature books in the history of our country, really, It was written in the late 1800s, about 40 years after the Civil War. And the guy who wrote it didn't go through the Civil War. But many of you are familiar with the Red Red Badge of Courage. The hero is a 17-year-old. His name is Henry Fleming in the book. Let me tell you about the story. So he's with the Union forces. He's a teenager. It's the first time he sees combat. In fact, historically, they, they think it was written based upon the Battle of Chancellorville. So... He faces combat for the first time, and they get, they get overrun by the rebel troops, and he panics, and he runs into the woods, and they all, all these guys are running into the woods, and they, he's running for his life as far and as fast as he can until he runs out of gas. 
And then he's ashamed that he ran from the battlefront. He broke rank. He broke rank. Because, you know, back then, everyone like, steady. You got to hold rank. He broke rank. Then he comes back to the camp, and he realizes, and there's other guys that ran too, and they all realize that they actually won that part of the battle. Because the other guys that stayed are talking about the victory and how the Rebs were on the, had to run. And so he purposes that he wants the red badge of courage. He wants a battle wound to make up for his failure of cowardice on the first day he saw combat. Well, the next day, it's day two of Chancerville. Evidently, that's a historical background to the book. And this time, they don't break rank. In fact, this time, as they're about to break rank, he grabs the flag, the Union flag, and starts rallying the troops and leads them up the hill against the rebel charge. I mean, it's all-time red badge of courage. We used to have to read that stuff in elementary school back in the 60s. Henry Fleming did not keep rank and was ashamed of it and wanted the red badge of courage and was willing to die in a hail of bullets with the flag going up the hill to make amends for his cowardice. And the next day, when he had a second chance, he held rank and rallied the rank to hold rank. My dad in the Korean War, the night, the all-night battle they had with communist forces, he was calling artillery rounds for the entire night next to the Aussies. The Aussies were on the left, the Anzac troops, and the Marines were on the right. And all night long, they're being almost overrun by the sheer number of troops coming at him. He had to hold rank. Vietnam was a totally different experience, but he always talked about that night they had to hold rank. You know, in the body of Christ, in our marriage, with the woman in the mirror, we need to hold rank. When we're tempted to walk away from the Lord, we get discouraged, we get downcast, we're depressed, we're in a funk, we're tempted. We need to, we need to hold rank on who we are in the Lord. We need to know our core values in Christ and why we're alive and why he's keeping us alive and what he wants to do. And we've got to hold rank. Hold rank. Just hold the line. Hold rank. When your marriage is under attack, you need to hold rank. Hold the line. Hold the line. Draw the line. Eliezer, David's mighty men of the first three, we read that he held line in the battlefield of lentils and he had the sword and it was like welded to his hand. Everyone was running and he turned around and he faced them and he held the line. He held rank. Anything great in life is going to be people agreeing together of common purpose, unity of purpose, one mind, to hold the line, to hold rank. When your marriage is under attack, when your kids are under attack, to hold the line. When your business is under attack, when your character is under attack, hold the line. When the church is under attack, hold the line. We're never going to hold the line for the Lord and the battle formation without him having our back to do so. We need women and men of courage and conviction that can hold the line. Because our brothers and sisters all over the world are doing it in difficult countries, like the Middle East and persecuted Asian countries. And they're holding the line. We need to hold the line in our lives. We need to be faithful and dependable for what God's called us to do. You know, the hardest thing about COVID that was tough, and I didn't want to get on a negative, so don't think of it as a negative. This is more like uh, information I'm sharing. Between pastors in different states that I've talked to the last three years, if anyone wanted a reason to leave church, they found plenty of them starting in March of 2000, 2020. 
If you want a reason not to go to church, you're just looking for one little thing. Man, you found lots of reasons not to go to church by March of 2020. And most pastors will tell you they lost 50% of their congregation in the first six months of the whole COVID stuff. And most pastors will tell you that 50% never came back to church. They'll say a 25% return, but it was a different group of people. Almost like scattered battle formation. Like when troops were scattered from different battalions and divisions, they kind of re- re- reset the line with a mixed group. All right, steady. You know, like when the Romans would overrun, they'd re- regroup whatever Romans were left because they all had unified in how they fought. And it, that's kind of what the body of Christ has been through. We've had so many people scattered. Like Henry Fleming. Scattered. They need to get back in church. They need to get back on track with the person in the mirror, with the Lord. They need to get back on track in their marriages and not live in fear, but live in faith. They need to get their vision back, their convictions back, and their courage back. The church isn't rolling over to die in 2023. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and all the promises are yes and amen. And the future of the church of Jesus Christ for my adult children and my grandchildren, your adult children, their grandchildren, and our children's children's children, as far as you can go, it's bright. It's always bright with a future and a hope with Jesus Christ as their King and Lord of their lives, Lord of their marriages, Lord of future generations, and Lord of his church. So we need to have, we just, we, we need to really consider like where we're at in the whole kingdom of God and to be of one mind and unity of purpose with ourselves and who we are and with our homes and our family and with our church and with our community and our nation. And we need to realize that every day does count and doing the right thing day by day is the right thing. And it doesn't change because governments change or policies change. The right thing with the Lord day by day is always the right thing with the Lord and it's never going to change. And going toward forward with the Lord day by day is going to always be the right thing to do. There's no reverse with the Lord. Forgetting those things are behind, we press on what lies ahead. So that we're called God in Christ Jesus. There is no going backwards with the Lord. It's always forward. And it's un- being discerning. It just seems like so much of the planet's in a stupor right now. Don't be in a stupor. Be alert. Wake up sharp and crisp. Have your head on a swivel. What's going on with the, you and the Lord? What's going on with your family and the Lord? What's going on with the body of Christ and the Lord, the universal church and the Lord? Wh- where are we at? Head on a swivel, alert, sharp, focused. Our very best of the Lord. And keep in rank. Whatever it is God wants to do in and through our lives personally, we want to do it and let him do it. And whatever he wants to do in and through our lives in the local church, we want to let him do it. I want to let the Lord do everything he wants to do in this church. I want to keep formation with the man in the mirror, my bride of 35 years by my side, my four adult children, my seven grandchildren with an eighth now on the way. I want to keep formation. I want to show them what it looks like when a woman of God or a man of God stays firm and faithful with the Lord no matter what. Because my standard, our standard is not what's going on out there. Our standard is what's going on in here with what's going on from up there. The authority of God's word, the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Great Commission. Those are three core values that will never change. Hold the line, unity of purpose of one mind.